JJ, thank you for joining me. It's been a few months trying to get everything set up, but here we are. We are here. Things happen for a reason, and sometimes things happen right on time, even if it's not our time. Yep, and checking my watch, I think we're right on time. So introduce yourself, please. So my name is JJ Greenfield. I am a New Jersey girl now, but my heart resides in Nashville in New York. And those three places have been very instrumental in my professional journey, my personal journey. Uh, I should also throw in Chicago there. So I'm very much a territorial, like I like claiming places and connecting with people based on where they are from, because I know for me, where I am from is, is very meaningful. So so Chicago, Philly, New York, New Jersey, Nashville, all those are kind of like my heart because I was either in school in one of those cities, grew up there, lived there. But my professional journey is one. I always say I am like that millennial who was born in in the 70s. Right. So I have gone. I'm, I'm unlike my parents who had one job that was their passion and they did it for 40 years. Got their gold pen and went off into the sunset. Exactly. Mm -hmm. They both, my mom worked for the public school system. My dad worked for the state of Tennessee. And I, you know, hey, we were, you know, we were rich um, (laughs) growing up. Little did I know. Right. (laughs) But I I was not that. So I, you know, my first job, oh, I, I sucked. I hated it. Second job after business school, I loved it. It truly was my professional home. But, you know, life happens. And so I lived right in the midst of 9 11 here in New York. And had an about phase that led me down the entrepreneurial path where I was, I I would say, one of the first entrepreneurs to really stake claim in the landscape of Harlem, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. bringing back businesses, especially black owned businesses that really elevated the lifestyle of being in Harlem, being uptown. We'll talk plenty about that. Let me just back up a little bit. Where did you spend most of your time growing up? Was that Nashville? That was Nashville. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nashville, Tennessee. Big fan uh, of Nashville. It's just a great place to grow up, right? It was just enough city, just enough country. And now, you know, the city has blown up. Like everyone wants to go to Nashville. But, you know, when I was there, it was you had black folk, white folk and a few Asians. That was it. Right. And you had country music, which was always country music, which was our kind of our industry. But it was just a great place to grow up. Right. There were lots of most of the kids I knew growing up had a mom and a daddy. And if, they, mm-hmm. or if their parents were divorced, there still was this notion of family and people ate dinner together at night and you know, living large was going to Pizza Hut on Friday. Right. So it was just it was just it felt it was so normal. Right. And, and, you know, I can relate to a lot of that. A lot of your story. My mother also was in, in uh, education. OK. Public schools. My father worked with uh, state and, and, and private institutions, mama and daddy and me and my brother and dinner at the yeah. same table and all of those things, you know, yeah. so that was that's part of our experience. That's part of that is a side of black America. Right. So what took you out of Nashville? What took you away from you? college? Where'd you go? I went to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Also known as Trump University. Uh, no, it is not. We do not claim that man. We do not claim him. He sure claims you quite a bit. I'd like to say, you know, we are claimed to Evelyn Higginbotham, who was one of the amazing professors there, John Legend. You know, we got folk, but yeah. no, we're, not claim, we're not claiming him. So, mm-mm. no, 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 we don't claim him. So you went to Penn and majored in? 
business. So I was in uh, at Penn. You apply to either one of four schools: engineering, business, arts and sciences, nursing. I applied to the business track. So I was on the undergraduate side at Wharton. And it was an amazing experience coming from a relatively small town, definitely a small high school. I was such a small fish in a big pond. Hmm. And you know, I would say better part of my freshman year, I felt like, what am I doing here? But it was really a great experience going to this big town. I love Philly because Philly has its own vibe. Like it's not trying to be in New York. It's not right. trying to be in Chicago. Like Philly is Philly. Really is dope. Yes, it is. Now, so small fish, big pond, but you you learned to swim because by the time it was time to leave, you gave a commencement speech at graduation. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you know, looking back on it, I slayed it. I, you know, yeah. and, and, and I did well, not because I was a rock star student by no means. OK, but I appreciated what I thought was all of what Penn had to offer. Now, as an alum, I'm actually enjoying Penn a lot more because you realize you're only in school for four years. Mm-hmm. You are an alum of that school forever. And so I really am enjoying the buildings, the lectures, the history of Penn that I didn't have the time or the interest then to to appreciate. But yeah, I was voted all of these old, old, old schools have got traditions that have lasted for you know centuries. And so there's one uh, tradition where they give the senior awards for to the top four women four to the top four men. And it's voted on by the entire senior class of the University of Pennsylvania. And so mm-hmm. I got the top award for the senior women. It's called the Althea Hoddle Award. So it's a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. And then I was voted by, I was selected by faculty at Wharton to be the student commencement speaker. So you have this massive commencement for mm-hmm. all of the University of Pennsylvania. And then the individual schools will have a smaller commencement ceremony. And I was selected the student speaker for that. So you were not only highly regarded amongst your peers and students who voted for you, but also the faculty. So little girl from Tennessee came to Penn and got busy. Yep, exactly. Exactly. In hindsight, I wish I had done uh, a different major or included another minor that really Mm. spoke to my personal interest instead of being on this track like everybody like you know, my parents certainly had a little bit of that immigrant mentality. Ooh, accounting, girl. Ooh, go major in accounting. Everybody mm-hmm. get a job in accounting, right? Mm-hmm. That wasn't necessarily my 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 favorite subject. And so for it to be my major was a little bit of a misalignment. But nonetheless, I appreciated my experiences at Penn. So hold steady real quick. First of all, immigrants from where? Oh, no, they're not. We okay. we are part of that. We are part of that original forced migration. Yeah. Right. Okay, so no, what I was saying is they really had that mentality of don't go to college and, and, and major in dance. Right. You go get something that's going to put food on the table. Exactly. Exactly. Because I was really involved with in ballet in Nashville. Now, when you say you wish you had maybe majored in something that spoke more to you, what would it have been dance? What do you think? What, what kind of things are coming to mind for you? It would have been history philosophy, econ, um, but those, that, that's JJ in, 19, in 2021 talking in terms okay. of, man, I, but um, I really loved history, loved history, had a little bit of fluency in Spanish. And so mm-hmm. being a black girl from the South who can speak Spanish, I should have minored in Spanish and embedded some international travel in there. So I always try to make those suggestions to some of the young folks that I meet now, like really mm-hmm. live outside of your, of your zip code. But for me, I was loving Penn so much. I was, you know, very active in my sorority. 
Honestly, I didn't want to leave Penn. Like, I felt like I was going to miss something. And so I was like, I'm not going to study abroad, right? I was really loving my college experience so much. I didn't want to, you know, divorce myself from Penn even for, even for a semester. But in hindsight, yeah, exactly. Wonderful. Okay. So what took you out of Philadelphia? A J-O-B. <laughs> so, so graduation, I headed up to New York. And I started working in investment banking, which is a classic, you know, Wall Street grind. You get in there, you work, you know, ungodly hours. And back then, you know, we didn't have the benefit of, a, you know, a email and, and the technology that makes this particular job a little bit easier. We straight up had a beeper. Our managing directors would call in and kind of give commands. So we would make changes to the pitch books you know, around nine, 10 o'clock. And then we would stay later in the evening to get those pitch books made. And these were basically in corporate finance. You've got industry teams that are pitching companies for their financing business of all sorts, stock deal, bond deal, mergers, that kind of thing. So it was the part of the podcast where Justin's eyes start to spin and I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Oh, got it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Pitch books and managing directors and okay. Essentially investment banking is the industries that are aligned by industry. So the individuals who work within industry groups, so healthcare, technology, industrials, media. So we as a team are working to help our clients or our future clients think about and structure financing options for them to grow, get better, be more competitive, that kind of thing. And it is a grueling process, it is like boot camp, right? Mm-hmm. But it's one of those where if you do this boot camp for two years, your work ethic is solid. Like I was like, man, pledging, you know, pledging helped me with this job because staying up late, that was that was not a big deal. But honestly, childbirth, I was like, oh, I got this. I got this. Like literally <laughs> one of those where being an analyst in investment banking made those beginning years of motherhood. I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. Wow, that that's that sounds actually horrible. That your, yeah, your job is so grueling that all of a sudden childbirth and and raising a kid is just like oh yeah, yeah no problem. I got it. I yeah. got it. What sorority are you a member of? Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority mm-hmm. Yeah, hearing a lot about them lately. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and really all and really all of the Divide Nine, but. I'm amazed, like I didn't understand kind of the evolution of, of Delta Sigma Theta and their and their work with the voting rights, uh, women's suffrage, which corresponds to their founding in 1913. So, but I mean, you know, I, I, I'm loving, loving this energy and enthusiasm around Black fraternal organizations. Love It's part of this greater narrative that's been taking place now over the last several years, you know, all things Black and kind of delving into and beyond kind of the surface identities of Black America. So I, I agree. I think having these discussions, um, you know, we just, as, as we talked about last night. So how long did you spend on Wall Street grueling and, and grinding? The first job in investment banking was a classic two years and then you're out. If you're great, they might offer you the associate role without going to business school. So I did two years. During that last year, I applied to business school um, got accepted to Northwestern's Kellogg Graduate School of Management and got the hell out of Smith Barney and went straight to business school. So 
All right. Technically two years there. So, all right. So now we've covered a good amount of the initial cities you mentioned. All right. We started in Nashville. We went to Philadelphia. We touched into New York. We've gone out to Kellogg now in Northwestern, out in, in on the lake. And so, okay. So now you've done these things. You're in, again, at, at Penn, your major was what again? Accounting. Accounting. Now we're at business school. So what are some of your visions at that point? What do you think you're going to do with yourself coming out of coming out of business school? I already knew that I was going back to the street, but going back on the sales and trading side. So during my two years in investment JJ, banking, uh, JJ, yeah. you have to define the street. Oh, got it. Wall Street. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my bad. My bad. Uh, some <laughs> some of these listeners will be like, mm, "She on them streets? Yeah, I got this." On them streets. She walking in the street. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So you knew you were heading back to Wall Street. Yeah, exactly. Because while I was. At Smith Barney in investment banking, I was exposed to the sales and trading side. So that's the market making side of a Smith Barney or a Goldman or a Morgan Stanley. And I was floored. I was like, what, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. So it literally is like a football field of folks screaming and yelling. But all of that screaming and yelling is just basically amounting to sales folks and traders going back and forth for purchases of securities, whether it's debt securities or 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 equity stocks. And this, these are the classic scenes we see in trading places and Wolf of Wall Street. Exactly. Yep. The, the classic scenes. Right. right. Exactly. And right. I was I was like, oh, this I, I could do this without even knowing a lot more. I was just like, OK, done. I'm there. I, I like this energy. I like this pace. I know a little bit about fixed income, which are, you know, bonds, because my my industry group, when I was in investment banking was utilities. So good old Southern company, Con Ed, right? All the sexy companies. That yeah, was right, my industry, right? right? Um, but they're, they're far more debt focused in their financing than they are equity focused. So I had a little bit more comfort on the debt side, but. We've covered the journey. So you've gone, you've gotten all your education and you find yourself back Manhattan. Boom. Here we go. All right. Let's take, let's take a break right there. And then we're going to, uh, we're going to go into the next chapter of your journey. So we're back in Manhattan. You're working now for who? Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley. Okay. And you love it or there's something calling you in the back of your mind? Oh, no, I'm loving it. Love, loved it. I like the interaction with clients. I liked watching the traders and, and how they had market insights about what was going on. But and I joined there in 1998. 2009-11 happened. Morgan Stanley was especially hit hard because we had a huge presence in the World Trade Building. And in fact, one of my clients had an office in the World Trade Building. And so it's just one of those where it stops you in your track to kind of live it, watch it, see it happening. And I was like, wow, I'm doing really well professionally. But that was it. Like, And I was, and I really had this tug of what else am I supposed to be doing? And not even knowing what that blank was. And then literally it just hit me. It's like, I I love, I loved Harlem. We still go to church there. We go to church there. Both of my grandmothers live there because a side note, my dad is from Harlem, born Mm -hmm. and raised. Mm -hmm. And I actually was born in Harlem too, until we moved to Nashville. Mm -hmm. So Harlem was, Harlem was like a second home. And I knew that I wanted to have some connection to Harlem. And initially it was like, oh, we'll just buy a brownstone and live there. But Mm -hmm. I think 
what what I came to was I like wine. I'm learning about it in the context of using it as an entertaining mechanism for work. And I really started getting into food pairings and producers and that took on a life of its own. And so then you have this kind of marriage of my desire to have some connection to Harlem, my interest in wine. And I've always been a retail rat. Like growing up in Nashville, I was a mall rat. I worked at The Gap. I worked at Banana Republic. I worked at Limited. So I knew retail. And so I think it was the perfect storm of all three of those factors. And so I think one day I literally shocked the hell out of my parents and my husband goes, like, you know what, I'm going to open up a wine store. And they're like, mm-hmm. you what? Mm-hmm. And that was in February of 2002. Mm-hmm. And we actually opened our doors in 2004. So it took a minute to really get funding and get my mind right and work on the business plan. So it wasn't, oh, I'm going to open up a wine store. And then a couple of months later, there it was. But had Harlem Vintage from 2004. Then in 2008, opened a wine bar right next to it. And circumstances happen. Life happens. I had two kids in rapid fire succession. I did not have the strongest of partnerships with my business partner. I think 2008 with the financial crisis certainly contributed to the ultimate closing of the bar and the sale of the store. But from 2004 to 2012, you know, that was my life. Let's delve into that because that's really, you know, the the meat and potatoes of our discussion today. And I I think it was great to kind of get that background picture of how you ended up there. But your father's from Harlem. You've got an affinity to Harlem. What does Harlem represent to you in a sense that you decided of all things, I'm going to open a wine store in Harlem. When I think of Harlem, I don't think of wine connoisseurs. Right. And most didn't at the time. So my goal was, and I remember in my my old business plan, I was like, listen, I am trying to do for wine in Harlem that Starbucks did for coffee. Right. I think before Starbucks, you did not associate an experience with going to get a cup of coffee. Right. You didn't have an affinity or a connection to your double mocha whip, blah, 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 whatever you right, mm-hmm. and, and you didn't have a connection to your barista where you knew them by name. And so I wanted to bring a little bit of that experience to the retail landscape and say to the world, we can be we can create a sales experience that goes far beyond the bulletproof glass, slip your money under, point to the liquor that you want, which was the prevailing type of liquor store in Harlem. And and really that exists in most of our city neighborhoods. Right. So the goal was one, to emphasize wine and not liquor. Mm -hmm. Two, it was to make it completely experiential, wine tastings, events, classes, and then you really started seeing digital marketing come into play, meaning, you know, emails, creating an email list, sending out emails. So we really were at the beginnings of connecting with customers in an cross-dimensional kind of way. So that's that's curious because it, that seems to make sense now looking back. But what gave you that confidence going into it that anybody wanted to come into a store for wine, not liquor, or had the knowledge or interest to say, I want these wines or those wines, as opposed to whatever they were familiar with at that point, because there was not a space for this in that community until you came. 
So first, I was looking at looking at the market. Like I, I saw the changing landscape of Harlem, and I'm not talking about ooh, white folk are coming in. I'm talking about you know people like my husband and I. We like to socialize in Harlem. We had friends who lived there. We went to church there, and so I was like, this neighborhood has not not had these stores before. So when I listened to my dad's experience growing up in Harlem. You know, he would talk about small businesses that really were the fabric of that community. Mm-hmm. So even the numbers man, it was a, a fabric. It was a part of the community. People knew each other. And largely, you know, they were black owned businesses creating a product or a service that benefited the black, the blacks who lived in the neighborhood. That was Harlem. And so I was like, you know, I want to bring back that whole vibe of Linux Lounge and Smalls Paradise, the Liberation Bookstore. And so all of those stores that I'd heard about from my dad, I was like, I want to bring a little bit of that into this. Like, I know people are going to drink wine, right? They might not know what they want because wine can be a very intimidating product, right? Like at the end of the day, vodka is vodka. Tequila is tequila. It's the branding and the packaging that is wrapped around it. But with wine, it is a very particular product. Not all Merlots are going to taste the same and not all Rieslings are going to taste the same. So it is part psychology and really reading into the consumer and what they want, how much they want to spend. So a lot of it was doing all of that. So putting all those pieces together. So a little bit of it. Justin obviously was naivete. I was like, oh, I'm Wharton. I got an MBA. How hard can it be? Ignorance is bliss and can be helpful, right? Because it allows you that I got this mentality, but I wasn't naive enough to not see that at some point Harlem was going to completely be a landscape of, you know, these small curated, highly experiential stores, which it ultimately became. So uh, let's talk about the experience. So you, you do a couple of years of prep work before you can actually, you know, get get doors open. What's your immediate reception like from the neighborhood? It was good. It was it was it be, well, one, because it took us so long to open. And a lot of that is it is a liquor beverage. So you've got your state. I mean, you have your city licenses and permits and all of that kind of good stuff. And then I think as people were seeing the build out of the store, we work with this black uh, designer who is one of my sores and she was fantastic. Like we, I could just tell her kind of what I was thinking and she would just come back with something that was even better, bigger, bolder. Like I remember when she came back and she was like, well, let's curve the ceiling like the inside of a barrel. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So as people were watching the build out of the store, I think there was this growing excitement of, oh my God, what is this? This is completely different. It's not anything we've ever seen before. So I think that hype, the actual build out, and again, remember, there was no social media, there was no Twitter to talk about what yeah, you you're know, doing kind of traditional marketing exactly, here. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So it really was build it and they will come. When people did come, did you get a sense of intimidation or apprehension from people? Like you said, this is a little bit of an intimidating product and there needs to be an educational component. I mean, you can go try wines and see what you like, which is what people say, but were you engaged with trying to do, you mentioned classes. Are you educating? Are you trying to teach people and engage them and say, look, let me, let me teach you or expose you to something that you may love. Yeah. All that. I do think, you know, part of our thing was, listen, you're not going to come in here and find the mass market wines that you see that you might be accustomed to, partly for economics. I can't 
have the same price as, you know, Billy Bob's liquor store that uh, that orders 25 cases of this. And therefore, they're going to get some amazing volume discount. Can't do it, won't do it. But if you like X, Y and Z, I've got X, Y and A that Mm -hmm. is similar, similar profile. So I think for me, what was great was I didn't come from a wine background. I came from a sales and trading environment, Mm -hmm. right? So sales piece, it's the relationship. Trading, it's the transaction, right? And so when you are at the epicenter of Wall Street, understanding those two factors, you can drill it back to that micro level, which is what, you know, which is what I did. I'm like, okay, great. If you like Pinot Noir, I got you. If you mm-hmm. like Riesling, I got you. And so I never, and this still happens to me when I go into certain stores. I think there's this, you go into a certain store and you are afraid to ask. One, you may not know what you like and how to convey that. Or two, you might be afraid to say, girl, I like a Moscato. That's what mm-hmm. I want. Or I want a $8 bottle of whatever you got because that's all the money I have. And so I think there was this buildup of negativity about being your authentic self when you come in. And I think I completely dispel that. That's my next question. What role did you being you, this Black woman, how did that disarm some of those apprehensions where people then had a level of trust to try what you suggested or to to take your advice when they come in and say, well, I I, I need a nice bottle of wine because I'm going to somebody's house. And you say, well, what do you like? I don't know what I like. I don't even drink wine. The last wine I had was yellowtail. So what can I take to these people's house so I don't embarrass myself. Exactly. But even in that scenario, and people would do exactly that. They're like, listen, I want to look, I want to look not so cheap going in their house, but I'm not trying to pay over X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I got you, right? So just even in that scenario, I would say, okay, okay we're not going to give them yellowtail because I don't sell yellowtail. But <laughs> it, this is where the whole psychology comes in. Do you know anything about what they like, right? Is, are, you know, do you only see them talk about or hear them talk about Chardonnays or what are they serving? that night? Is this just a barbecue? Is this a football party? Right. Mm -hmm. So let's match wines, not only to your preference or their preference. And if you don't know that, then let's be real. Let's talk about price, right? Like what's your comfort, you know, what's your price point? And then what, and then what's the occasion? So Mm -hmm. I think once we drill down to that, and the other thing is we were a small, relatively small store. And I say relatively small because the store that I am opening now, fast forward, you know, almost 10 years later, it is micro compared to the size of Harlem okay. Vintage. And that's unapologetically so. But we weren't a big store in the context of these huge, big box wine retailers that you see. So I knew my product, right? Like everything that came in the door, either my manager, wine buyer, or or or, or me. We tasted right. everything. You know, not coming from a wine background, did you rely heavily on that manager or how did, how did you get your relationships or were you kind of growing with it along the, the path or, or how did that come? I mean, it, you know, a lot of these folks are, are very in tune with it. We did hire a manager and she was amazing, a sister, and she knew her stuff. Like just to hear her talk about wines, I was like, wow, this is amazing, right? And so it gets to, you know, this understanding that you come to later in life, like people are anointed in their profession, when they are in a profession that they absolutely get. Like when I was hearing her talk, I mean, she just could could piece together regions and soil and producers and probably still, but in a different way than I can. Right. So I learned a lot from her, but more importantly, I learned a lot from my customers. Absolutely. 
And so that was the most important thing was saying like, listen, I might own this store and I might have taken a few classes and got some certifications. But at the end of the day, I need to be in tune and listen to what my my customers are liking or not liking and really being an active listener to make sure my product selections match where I think they can go or where I can help take them. All right. So I, I find it curious because I, you know, I'm going from my own experience with wine and what I know and what I don't know. And even that concept of what you like, it kind of changes several times over time. When you were making your selections for inventory, to what degree could you be pointed? You, you had a black designer for your architecture. You have a black manager for your wine. At that time, 2008, 2012, what, what influence did you have over finding minority producers of wine? Oh, yeah. So remember, it was 2004, Justin. When ah. we opened. It was even earlier. But we committed back then to find and profile. In fact, we called it the Winemakers of Color Collection. Mm-hmm. And we were the only store in the country. And I can say that with absolute confidence and clarity that we really elevated certain Black producers. Like we went out of our way and we found like Vision Sellers, who's winemaker and owner's Mac McDonald, amazing guy. And we found a producer, well, an importer actually, Heritage Link Brands that was started by two Harvard graduates. And they were bringing in wines largely from Black winemakers from South Africa. So we really took our, and there was another South African wine that I loved. It was called Tabani. And that winemaker is is still engaged in the industry. He has another wine called Highberry. So we were there before it became a hashtag. Sure, sure. Now, what was their reaction to you? you? You know what it's like when you walk in somewhere that you do not belong. So what was it like for a Black wine producer to see you coming along with your wine store? What was that interaction like? Oh, it was it was like you could exhale. You're like, wow, this is amazing. Right. This is great. We it was one of gratitude and one of relief and one of acceptance. And so when you are in partnership and in an in authentic one, you could be real. Like, for example, I remember bringing in Brown Estates and loved their wine. Like people they're known for their Zinfandel great story, but the price point, right? You know, like, hey, the price is what it is, but I have to be honest, you know, back then and say, okay, uh, I think it was like maybe a $60 or $50 bottle of Zinfandel. That's not going to be everyone's go-to. But for me, like one of the, I remember taking it to one of my friends whose last name is Brown for their Super Bowl party. And I mean, my gift was like, you know, the drop the mic gift. Right. So it was one of those where, again, knowing your customer, but having a, a strong enough relationship with the producers to be able to say, this is not going to be my this is not going to be a wine I'm going to be able to sell a everyday basis, just given the price point. Also, Zinfandel's, there was a movie that came out called Sideways that really got mm-hmm. people all in love with Pinot right. Noir. They're, they're running through, they're running their wine tour adventure. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So when that movie came out, literally there was a one for one correlation with what people wanted when they came into the store. And it was Pinot Noir. So I literally lived that, you know, that shift. Now, so you closed down that store and that operation right at the time 
that some other pop culture explosions were happening. You know, so scandal starts right around the time that you're closing things up. And so you've got this dynamic woman character who makes drinking wine after work a thing. Right. Right. Um, and so, you know, it would have been interesting if you were still there to see what, what influence that has on things nowadays, not like 2004, but there's so many images of black celebrities associated with wine, Dwayne Wade. And now Snoop is there with, you know, his face on the wine and Mary J and I mean, just on and on and on. No, you know, and part of that is, you know, on one hand, I'm like, that's great. It brings more consumers to the table. What irks me just a little bit is when we create a certain product for our market, right? Like let's elevate our wine, you know, the wine intellect and let the product reflect not just one type of wine drinker. My mom loves a white Zen and her palate leans a little bit more sweet, but that should not be a reflection of the whole family. Right. And I, still feel like we are at that. We, you know, I, I, I still feel, even when I go into some of those big stores, they're like, well, it's not so sweet. Yeah. Because they expect that you want sweet wine. Yeah. Exactly. What, what part of me and my words to you said, Oh, she wants a sweet wine. So, but quite frankly, a lot of these products that are coming out now, even from our own play into that. Well, I think you're right. It's, it's knowing that our knowledge and our wine intellect is somewhat limited and so they say, well, since you don't know anything else and you only have been drinking Moscato, we'll make you something very similar to Moscato. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How do we combat that? I think we, we, you know, it's all about it's all about education and it is and owning our own experience. Like, no, I didn't want that, nor did I ask for it. Last week I had like this week right now, I am checking for a wine called Arnace. That's the name of the grape okay. from the Piedmont area. And so I'm like, okay, that's me right now. So it's like, I always encourage people, hey, if there's a producer or a grape or region that you love, let's run with that. Mm-hmm. And in the context of what you like, whether it's white or red or, or sweet or dry, we can run with that. But I think people have to, you know, kind of own their own experience and be very confident and, well, and comfortable in what they are you, they know, they don't know. are you partial to Italian wines? I am partly because it, when I was starting to study wine, this is a funny story. I, again, remember I said I, I, I love Spanish, was damn near fluent coming out of high school. And so Italian was easy for me. Spanish was easy for me. When I got to those French wines, I was like, I don't know how to pronounce these things. <laughs> French is a whole nother situation, except for the Loire Valley. That is my spiritual wine home, <laughs> the Loire Valley. And it's beautiful but too. So. It's beautiful. But the, but Italy, like when, when we were pregnant with our first child, we took a cruise. We The cruise almost left us because we were vibing with some winemakers in Sicily. I'm, you know six months pregnant. They're like, Oh, try this wine, try that wine. So I, I've got a love, I've got, you know, stories in my, in my soul that endear me to Italy. And so I think by, by nature of, of that connection to the place, I do spend more of my wine buying dollars in Italy. Yeah. And, and and I think it's great. And it's encouraging to people to go out and try to find whatever it is, if it's that you vacationed there and you like it, but that's a whole nother story about whether or not 
you know, black Americans actually vacation in Europe or do we just continually go to the Caribbean? That's true. But, you know, the great thing about wine is you can travel. And we certainly learned this in the pandemic. It, it was amazing. I, you know, I love the pandemic from the standpoint. I had so many one on one conversations with winemakers because of the ability to have these video chats and Zoom calls. So, you know, we're talking with winemakers in Australia. They're walking the vineyards and showing us. So while I wasn't there, wine has the ability to transport you like a good book. Wine has the ability to transport you to, you know, the hills of Piedmont or the, you know, the grassy knolls, uh, you know, in Australia. So that's one of the great things about wine. It can be a study in History, politics, geography, all culture in all its forms. And Absolutely. I, I've mentioned that previously that I travel with my food. I travel with my plates. Yep. I travel with my drinks. And it either takes you back to a place that you went and loved or a place you've never been and you hope to go to. So exactly. Yeah, yep. Wonderful. Wonderful. Exactly. Right now, we've got a fairy tale. We've got JJ from Nashville, who's this academic star. She's smarter than most. She goes off to trump you. I'm sorry. Wharton. No, here you go. Right? You end up in these places. You open the first, I guess, of uh, let's call it the first of the modern era, because, you know, I, I don't know the history of Harlem, you know, back in Renaissance days, but you open kind of a revolutionary wine store and then a, a tasting bar or a wine bar subsequently. Mm-hmm. The fairy tale's there, and you alluded to circumstances, but I think that's an important part of the story as well, that sometimes good things don't last forever. Can you shed shed some light on what caused you, what lessons you learned, what mistakes may have been made that made you say, you know what, it's time to transition to something else and we'll revisit this later? Yeah, there, you know, there was a lot, you know, you have your macro factors, like I referenced the 2008 financial crisis. Like, it really was hard. I've always said when Big businesses catch a cold, small businesses catch pneumonia, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard for small businesses to to play catch up. And we're seeing that, you know, honestly, now coming out of this pandemic. And if you drive up and down the streets of Manhattan, man, there's so many stores that are closed, boarded up, right? But yet you've got Walmart and Target thriving, right? Sure, Sure. So small businesses have it tough because of resources, right? And I was no different. One, as a people resource, as the owner, I'm doing everybody's job. Some of it willingly, some of it because I have to. Like I remember schlepping wine glasses home because the dishwasher was broke. We really endeavored, again, this whole experience. People, when they tasted wine in Harlem Vintage, they use real wine glasses. I was like, we're not using, you know, cup paper cups. Mm-hmm. But I say all that to say there was so much of what I needed to be doing as the owner and allowing or delegating to other people other roles. And so I think as an owner, there is this psychology of, well, this is my store. It's easier, quicker, better for me to just do it myself because I have the vision of what it need, how it needs to get done instead of finding a team, which I ultimately did. I had a number of great um, individuals who work with me. In fact, one, I started aligning myself with the Doe Fund, which in Manhattan is an organization that helps formerly incarcerated men re-enter in a meaningful way back into the workforce. Some of my best, 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 best employees came from that program. Wonderful. Big fan um, of the Doe Fund. Tremendous Uh, integration. Yeah, tremendous integration. So really it was a couple things. One, being overburdened. Two, not delegating. Three, 
not really having a solid back office team, not not saying back office team, but I think there was this notion of, well, we don't need a lawyer until we need one. Or, you know what, we've got QuickBooks. We don't need an accountant, right? Like, no, 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 no. And and I'm like, in in this new venture, the first two people that I brought on board were lawyer (laughs) and my accountant. I was like, we're not going down that path again. And so it's realizing that, yes, while I may be a graduate of Wharton with an accounting degree, I need to be focused on ringing the cash register so that that accountant and and the lawyer have something to do. Yeah. I think those two things really focusing on team building and delegating. And I would say finally, and most importantly is know who you are in partnership with. I remember one of my professors in B school, and this was before I was even thinking along the entrepreneurial path. He's like, ask yourself, why do you need a partner, who that partner is, and what does that partner bring to the table that you don't already have or can hire, right? Like why give up equity if you can hire someone to do something that you think your partner brings to the table? So it is really thinking smartly about your team and using them. So that's kind of the big arc. But I also think, especially for female entrepreneurs or or family entrepreneurs, when I started Harlem Vintage, it was just my husband and, and me. It was just us. Then we had, so we opened up Harlem Vintage in 04. I had my first kid in 06. We opened up Nectar in 08. I had my second kid in 09. You know, so you see, like, I was going boom, 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 right? And I think I was going at such a rapid fire pace that entrepreneurial fatigue set in with a quickness. And that fatigue, when it's not relieved, became such an extreme burnout that I was I, I was running on both ends of the stick, thought, oh, I've got this. And then in hindsight, I really, I really didn't. And I got to the point where I wasn't enjoying it. And and you weren't still working Wall Street at that time. No, 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 no. no. Okay. I left Morgan Stanley in 05. Okay. Let's catch our breath and then I want to talk about the new venture. So let's talk about the basics of what you're opening now. Like you said, it's almost a decade later. I know, right? Obviously, you, you still have the bug. I mean, behind you on your wall is a is a wine uh, sign. Yep, exactly. Still has you. You've got a new vision. Tell me about this this new this new location. Absolutely. So it's called the Wine Down, and it is a <laughs> store and an e-com site. And it really is, you know, seeing some of those trends that were just coming to be with the first store, right? It wasn't about digital anything. Like maybe you had an email list Um, towards the end. I think Facebook was just now picking up this entity. And I thought after the wine bar and the wine store, I was like, oh, I'm done. I'm done with retail. I'm good. I'm just going to be a wine consumer. And that's that. But I think once you have it in you, it's hard. Like I would go into wine stores and I could linger. I mean, you talk about window shopping and asking questions and people hate going to wine stores with me because it's never a, oh, let me run in and run out. Like I, I, I get lost in stories that I, re- wines that I remember, new new wines, right? So it really is a part of my ethos. I, I you know, I get absorbed by it. And so I think for me, not saying, okay, you know what? I've been so burnt out. I'm good. I'm not going to do it. In between the stores closing, I taught for a long time. I was a professor out in Long Island and I loved it. You don't really recognize what you know or don't know until you try to teach someone else. 
So it was a great re-education of relearning for me. And it was great to kind of unpack. It was almost like therapy to unpack my entrepreneurial experience for my students, right? So it almost became a, a living case study. Did that process get you motivated again to say, hey, you know what? I'm, instead of talking about this, I, I need to get back into doing this. I, you know what? Not not really, because I was just in love with helping students think about what they wanted to do mm-hmm. and really navigate them around. Hey, we're learning this and I'm your professor for this class, but let's really get down to brass tacks about what you enjoy, what you're good at, what you like to do. Because when those circles kind of come together right there in that epicenter is going to be where you're going to find professional fulfillment. And so it was almost, again, happenstance how we came to opening up or in the process of opening up the wind down here in Jersey. I live near the ferry, which is the boat that goes in between Manhattan and New Jersey, cotton people back and forth. And it was like a super small space. And, you know, it doesn't take a a Wharton degree to figure out, wow, there's 300 people on a boat coming off of a boat every 10 minutes. Even if I capture five or 10% of those people between four and 8 8 p.m. to run through and get a bottle of wine. Right. So, you know, that math was easy to to do and see that there was some potential, even though, you know, the store will be sandwiched in between these behemoth liquor and wine stores. But competition is motivating. And so I had some great partners with the ferry terminal. They liked the idea. And so I was like, let's do it. Let's do it. And again, like the first go around with Harlem Vintage, didn't plan on it, didn't have it in my spirit to want to do it. But, you know, when something it, when something is there, you, you really have to embrace it. So, of course, the pandemic hits. So there's been, you know, some time delay. But if nothing else, it has allowed me time to focus on the e-com site, which is a curated selection of wine accessories and products and books that kind of support what I'm calling the wine down. It's, you know, it's more than just you coming into the store or on the site to buy a bottle. It's you really tapping into where are you right now? What's your mood? What's your mindset before we get to what's your budget, right? And now more than ever, you know, especially now that we're kind of on the very tail end of of, of mental health awareness month, it's really saying, what is it for you that allows you to just kind of wind down. And it doesn't even have to be about what wine do you want to drink or what wine can I sell you? It is about where can you be to be at your best and your most relaxed. So you're you're integrating uh, everything from, like you said, mental health to preferences, to mood and emotional, all of these things coming in together. That in a tiny little, it's literally just in this store is 200 square feet. And so that's the economics of what I've learned over the last couple of years. You don't need to be a huge wine store. If you really know your customers and you know what they like and you know how to position wines to them, the the system works easy enough and quicker, quickly enough where you can move through inventory. Because what happens is in these bigger stores, 20% of the inventory is what is really moving. Mm -hmm. But when a store is 5,000 square feet or 1,000 square feet, guess what? You have to have inventory to fill that 5,000 square foot store, whether that inventory is moving or not. Excellent. Excellent. Do you envision shipping? You say it's an e-commerce site. So folks from out of state, we can log on and have this experience and 
Yep, absolutely. There are certain states, and I don't. I, it, it changes all the time. But in terms of the products on there now, with the accessories and the goods, the home goods related to, you know, that wind down environment, that it can go anywhere. Yeah. You live in Guam, we can get you. We can get it to you. You yeah. live in Hawaii, and so you know what I'm excited about while we build out the physical store is the the subscription boxes around wine accessories that tap into the season and the moment. You know, there's lots of things on the horizon that I'm that I really am excited about. No, it sounds it sounds very exciting, and I'm looking forward to that. When do you expect this to kind of be up and running? Well, the physical store. I'm at the, uh, uh, you know, I'm at the behest of the uh, state of New Jersey. Okay. So once I get the approval, the thumbs up and, you know, whole, you know, everyone has been backed up, log jammed because of working from home and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But also different from New York, New York was far more easy, if you will. They're like, listen, you want to open up a wine store? Boom. Because New York was like, that's that's new tax dollars for us. Mm-hmm. New Jersey is a little bit different in terms of their organization of how new liquor entities can be created. Mm-hmm. So once I kind of grind my way through their process, I am hoping by the end of this summer, summer 21. Excellent. And where should we go to find you? What are, what are the um, media contact points? So everything is windown.shop. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, the website, the name of the store. Keep it real easy. No, you know, it is windown.shop. Looking forward to it. Now, you're also involved in things that are not wine related and you have a real passion for teaching. Right now, you're also working particularly with young women interested in your other life, investment banking, sales, trading, finance. Talk to me a little bit about that. And so not just women, not just women, but uh, I work with an organization called MLT, Management Leadership for Tomorrow. And it is equipping our Black, Latino, Latinx, and Native American young college students awareness, preparation, understanding what those soft skills are, and really helping them identify Here's the bar that has been set because so often, and, and I experienced this too coming out of Ward. You can go to the best business school in the country, but if you are not equipped with understanding the soft skills and understanding that unwritten playbook, then you're not set up for success. You might be able to do the job, and maybe you're going to find some sponsor, some mentor. But what you know, my role is within career prep at MLT is really helping them understand. Firstly, where's your sweet spot? Like, let, let's take dial back before we even talk about Morgan Stanley and Goldman and Kraft and, and Google and all of these firms that sound great. And if you got the job, mama would be like, oh, my baby is working at Google. Right. But mm-hmm. before we even get to that celebratory point, let's step back and really take some hard assessments as to what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What do you enjoy doing? What motivates you? And then we have real one-on-one, some hard conversations. But more importantly, we have those relationships to have those conversations about what, you know, based on where where you are, where your head is, what you're studying, what's important to you, what motivates you. Let's now translate that into where we can, you know, where that will work from a work standpoint. And do you have the skills, both the hard skills and the soft skills set up to help you 
succeed in that role. And so I enjoy, you know, I enjoy it. It was, it's a role that even before Corona was a hundred percent remote, but it's great because I can interface and, and meet students from literally all over the country. And having gone to University of Pennsylvania and Northwestern, it's amazing to, to meet students all over who are smart, hungry, you know, so to me, if nothing else, I learned that wherever you go to school, sometimes it almost doesn't matter where you go. I mean, that does matter, but it's almost in your gut and in your heart what kind of drive and motivation you have. JJ, you have boundless energy. You have a track record of, I guess, unmatched success. I think you are to be praised as one of our heroes, particularly in the Black community. Thank you. Uh, so excited. Uh, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I had to restrain myself in this wine conversation. We'll do, we'll do part two. Okay, because uh, there's so much actually about the wine that I want to talk about. But I thought, you know, we can't just jump into, like you said, talking about terroir and all this kind of stuff. Um, but absolutely exciting, fascinating stuff. Will you still have a uh, producers of color section over in, in, in uh, wine down? Absolutely. But right now it's like, it's everywhere. Like you, you know, most, most folks know um, about Andre Mack and the McBride sisters and the Opolis wines. So yeah, you know, so now it is on people's radar, which is great. Mm -hmm. You know, when I started in 04, it was not on people's radar, but luckily it is now, but I will always champion wines that need to, that, that have a story to be told. I, I think it's wonderful. And I think that changing that face of wine expertise and wine accessibility and changing the face of that and having it a face like yours is so impactful and so relevant and necessary. And yeah, we're going to, we're going to go into this space uh, and enjoy it just like everybody else on earth. Absolutely. Right. Like, and we're going to, you know, it, it will be, it, it's a part of a lifestyle. It really, you know, it really is. All right, JJ, I'm sure we've gotten uh, to the end of podcast acceptable time. So she's still talking. Still going. Still going. But um, yeah. right, so let's yeah, wrap she's this. like a, a black preacher. Yeah. Let's wrap this up. You know, that's the end of just been, talking. Yeah. Listen, it has been a, a pleasure. I also get equal enthusiasm when I meet, you know, brothers like you who have that, that day job that is still super important. But, you know, when you can tap into what really give, that drives you, that also is inspiring to me. So this has been a pleasure. And when the physical store opens, would love to kind of come back, especially as we get closer to the holidays and, and really talk shop. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Meanwhile, I'm going to get online and see what I can commerce. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, I like that. That is a verb. That, yeah. Um, to, to so, all right, I'm going to stop us up here now and we will, we will chat again soon. Thank you for joining us again. JJ Greenfield, you're amazing. You're a dynamo. Uh, thank you for making time. And that's it for this episode of Just Black Talking.